Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have, I'm thrilled to have today's guest uh, on Arash's World. Um, how are you doing, Shepard? Oh, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. Now, what I like to do with, uh, with every guest here is to briefly introduce yourself. So I'm looking forward to that. How would you describe yourself in a few words? Oh, my. Well, I started out as a child and... Um... I kind of took it from there. And actually, uh, you know, as like any child, I enjoyed being playful. So some of the highlights of my life are times when I've been able to be politically engaged and uh, but at the same time playful. And in a way, that's a theme that runs through my books. But uh, I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, during a, a time when people were able to collectively dream of a better world and that uh, i was young enough that that made a very uh, big impression on me I, I went on to do studies in uh, vocational special education working with young people with disabilities and i was also a professional musician uh and and then here in seattle where i live now i worked as a public schools administrator but eventually got back to writing these books, which was a dream of mine to uh, get my message out. And I've written two books about the trickster in politics and culture. Mm -hmm. And today uh, we're going to talk about uh, your book, uh, your most recent book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, How Tricksters Through History Have Changed the World. And it's, it's, it's quite fascinating, especially the, the idea of the trickster and uh, the one who, who likes to play and to, to even like fool us, but in a, not in a negative sense. So I, I, I do get the feeling that there is like, Yes, there is some sort of mischievous side to, to the trickster, and we're going to define it in a few moments. But there's also like, it's just the main thing is fun, right? And that's, I think, is that's what I get from, from, from reading uh, your book here. That's right. And you made that comment that, that, that mischief, which a lot of people do react negatively to when it um, causes apprehension, shall we say? Um, they're not uh, tricksters are not evil, but it's but they're they're tricky because they're not good either. Like you said, they just want to have fun. But when you study trickster tales and every culture on the planet has a trickster god or a trickster character in its folklore or mythology or even in its religion, the trickster tales, they they stumble through the world looking for fun. And, but they stumble from a place of what Robert Louis Gates Jr. calls moral indeterminacy, right? Neither good nor evil, but eventually they reach a point of moral discovery. And that's one reason why they're so valuable to us, because we need to be in touch with those moments of moral discovery. Personally, I'm, I'm not a big fan of doctrine, whether it's political doctrine or religious doctrine, left, right, or center. And I am in favor of what the trickster brings us, which is an experiential approach. And I would ask you, you and your listeners, do you want to know what's right and what's wrong based on what some doctrinaire authority is telling you is right and wrong? Or do you want to discover that for yourself? 
And so the more we're aware of the trickster, the more we can have those moments of moral discovery. Yeah, and I, I think we are like so like afraid of like we we need a fixed structure. And one thing I rail against is like the box. And I that I like the term thinking outside of the box. And I would describe myself as that. Not necessarily a trickster, but still like thinking outside of the norm. And morality to me, like you're saying, it's not fixed because it's it's fluid. And we yes. do see like fluidity in, in various aspects that we're embracing now. But I think it's like in certain terms, it's still pretty rigid. Uh, and as you, as you mentioned, political doctrines and stuff. I mean, it's like you either on this side or on that side. And I, I liked I, I like Socrates for me. That's the ultimate trickster. And so when I talk to ah. somebody who's religious, I try to convince them there is no God. And somebody who's not, I try to convince them there is a God. And I, <laughs> just for the heck of it. So maybe I am a bit of a trickster there. <laughs> Well, well, you know, I would subscribe precisely to your position on the existence of God. Depends who's asking, huh? And, and then I feel bad when they when I convince them that there is a God, and I try to like get them back to not believing in that. Oh, I was just kidding, right? Yeah. Right. But I, I think that kind of um, is is important, and we're we just uh, especially nowadays. I feel more than than before, we're taking things way too seriously. Right. I think that's a big part of it. And, you know, I, I, I tell this to folks, you know, if I'd written a book about great warriors, the great generals through history who have fought in wars and won and lost battles, everybody in the audience would know exactly what I was talking about because we live in a warrior culture and we're, we're, we're so immersed in it, we're oftentimes not aware. And too often, and this is part of the seriousness of the times that you talk about, we think we can solve our problems by defeating our adversaries and that often we're, are turning, we are turning the violence as a way to solve problems. And we know that it we, that doesn't. Now, I'm not against the warrior. The warrior is capital W. Warrior is an archetype. You can't kill an, an archetype. They all have to have their place. But I think it's time for the warrior to sit down and shut up for a little while and let the other archetypes, not just the trickster, but the mother, the hero, the artist, the fool, the lover, the jester, the shadow, the innocent, the outlaw, the shapeshifter, the sage, let them have their say, and the trickster. So the, the problem is when we use the word trickster, we're, we don't live in a trickster consciousness so people don't really agree on what I'm even talking about. And that's why in that first chapter in the book, I talk about the 10 attributes. Um, but I will say, because we don't have that much time, um, but I can give people a shortcut. And the, I, um, you know, I, I live in the United States, and, uh, but American culture, of course, is everywhere. And if you want a shortcut to who the trickster is, the great American trickster is Bugs Bunny. And if you understand Bugs Bunny, you've got, you've got pretty much a handle on who the trickster is. But I discriminate between tricksters who are fictional, like Bugs Bunny, but also like Loki, you know, who's an actual Norse god, or Wachunkaga, um, or the Huli Jing, 
these other trickster characters that are fictional. So they're either a religious or a mythological or a folklore figure. And that includes cartoon characters. Um, and I use lowercase t for human, human beings for whom, with whom the force is strong. And that could be anyone from Marcel Duchamp to Lord Buckley. Who's Lord Buckley, you may ask? Lord Buckley is the most famous person to have never become famous. And he gets a whole chapter in the book. Yoko Ono, The Force is Strong with Her, The Marx Brothers, Thelonious Monk, Banksy, The Yes Men, um, Sasha Baron Cohen, Buster Keaton. The, uh, he, Mae West is a favorite of mine. And she, she gets a lot of uh, uh, notice in the, in the book. So those are lowercase t tricksters, human beings who have that spirit in them. I like that, the spirit. And, the, the, and there is like a common denominator, if you like, between all these people that you mentioned. And for me, the embodiment, like Lord Buckley, thank you actually to, for pointing out to, to, to me because I was not aware of it. And he's been so influential for many of the other generations of musicians and artists that came. And for me, like the Beatles are, I see them as tricksters and they uh, were influenced by, by Lord Buckley. Right, right. In fact, uh, if you've got some Bob Dylan fans out there, if they, they look at that, and, and a lot of people make the case that Bob Bob Dylan's a trickster, and he, you know, everybody's got some in them. There's a little bit of the problem with uh, Bob Dylan because um, he doesn't um, allow himself to be humiliated. And part of what happens with tricksters is they take chances and they play tricks, and their tricks backfire on them as often as they work. And so they are always willing to risk humiliation. <laughs> However, um, what's, the what's the name of the Bob Dylan album right before Highway 61? Bringing It All Back Home. <laughs> if you look at the photograph on the cover of Bringing It All Back Home, Bob Dylan's sitting there in the living room. He's got some record album jackets and uh, a, a, a woman. She looks like a, a fashion model or something sitting next to him. And then there's a fireplace and there's a mantle on the fireplace. If you look closely on the mantle of the fireplace, there's a picture of Lord Buckley. No way. Okay. I'll have to do that. <laughs> and in fact, there's a very early recording. It was, it's called Bonnie's Tape. And Bob Dylan was like in a hotel room in, in Minnesota just playing for some friends. And somebody recorded it so you can find bootlegs of it. And in one of them, he, I can't remember which Lord Buckley routine it is, but he takes the Lord Buckley routine and sets it to music and performs it. Mm -hmm. and so he's touched everything, yeah. It's it just the, the spirit again that he passes on, that kind of mischief and playfulness. And I, I love Bob Dylan, but I see more as a shapeshifter who just like constantly yeah. reinvents himself. It's like yeah. always somebody else. And uh, sometimes fun, sometimes not so much fun, but again, that that's that's his thing but right. um i i think with with lord buckley it's just like um he's also the way he died or just uh checking on him was just very tragic too yes it was and there's a lot of mystery surrounding how he died and and, and you know beneath his fun loving ca uh, caricature and the force was really and you could make the case that he was the greatest uh he, you know lowercase t american uh, trickster um, he suffered a lot. He wanted to make it as an entertainer, and he never really made it big. Now he self-destructed a lot. Um, you know, he had an offer once to do a, a whole campaign for Coca-Cola, 
and he showed up at the business meeting with um, a, um, a couple of prostitutes. And I think he was making an anti-capitalist statement and uh, bringing a symbolism to what they expected him to do in these Coca-Cola commercials. On the other hand, he would have been paid very, very well and he would not have died in such mysterious and somewhat forlorn uh, circumstances. Uh, the other thing else, you know, he just never had any money. Um, and the opera, but, but, you know, he, he brought, uh, he did a lot to bring black culture, in particular black vernacular, into the American mainstream. You could make the case that he was the first beatnik and the first hippie. I love also talking about Neil Cassidy, of course, as a trickster type, but Lord Buckley predated, uh, uh, predated him. Well, the thing about him and money is, you may have read that, you know, he appeared on the Ed Sullivan show uh, many times. So a, a big part of America was familiar with his routine and he would come on as something of a comedian, but he was really more of a performance artist. And we're talking the late 50s here. I mean, mm -hmm. performance artist in the late 50s, nobody else was even, the, the term had not even been coined. My point is, um, Ed Sullivan just loved him, and uh, I'm going to hope that your listeners know and remember who Ed Sullivan was, but it was the most popular American variety TV show that we all watched Sunday nights, and the first where the Beatles appeared, you know, was a big, big deal. Anyway, Ed Sullivan was, as wealthy as he was, was known to be very cheap, and he watched his, his nickels and dimes very, very carefully. However... When Lord Buckley died, he was in debt for over $100,000 to Ed Sullivan because Ed Sullivan loved him so much and wanted to help him succeed and loaned him money multiple times. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and so the, the, just going to hear also the, the main idea here is disruptive play that you explain in, right. in different ways of like kind of breaking the structure in a way or making fun of it or, or, or showing us kind of like a mirror of like showing us what things are. And um, can we talk about that? And one of the points that you make is that it's they, they want um, not chaos, but it's anti-structure. Yes. And to me, that's important. So let's, let's see, what, what, what would you say about disruptive play? Oh boy. So, um, well, let's segue from, from Lord Buckley. So, you know, one of the 10 attributes of tricksters and a very important one, and anybody who has raised a child uh, knows that the first thing a child does when you try to implement rules is they break the rule to see what's going to happen. And that's, what that's the childlike quality of the trickster, that they are uh, rule breakers and boundary crossers and God bless boundary crossers. It's boundary crossers who make art great, who give people new ideas, who unveil things. And so that is how disruptive play occurs. Um, sticking with Lord Buckley for a minute. So he did things like, you know, he was kind of like Andy Kaufman in a way. He would break the rules of comedy and he would stand in front of an audience and he said, would it embarrass you if I told you that I love you? And he would say this, you know, in public at a nightclub setting. And he um, he once uh, he was friends with Frank Sinatra. And once while Frank Sinatra was performing is I can't remember if it was a Florida 
club or a Las Vegas club. And, um, and he paraded again in, this is in the fifties. Uh, he parade, he got, he got 50 people to take their clothes off and paraded them naked through the club. Um, uh, that's disruptive play. So to, to put it simply, I look at three kinds of playfulness, original play, cultural play and disruptive play. So original play is what all animals do and little baby humans also. And for lack of a better term, I just call it frolic. Um, you're, you're rolling around on the ground, no hitting, no biting, that's not sexual, no tickling, no, no clutching, but you're kind of wrestling around and you can enter this gr state of grace, this state of playfulness where you're just having fun, where little games might emerge but they dissolve as quickly as they emerge. So there's no keeping score. There's no winners or losers. There's just playfulness. Then you get cultural play. Cultural play is when we organize that energy into a game or into a matter of achievement. And so it's everything from going to school and trying to get a good grade on a test to winning a football game. And of course, in its most toxic form, cultural play is war which I do have a problem with. But cultural play itself, it's not a bad thing. It just has to be held in check. And of course, the warrior, that's what they're always about winning and doing cultural play. So disruptive play is when you introduce original play into the competitive arenas of cultural play. So that's the kind of thing Lord Buckley was doing. I'll give you a banal example that people may remember streaking where someone would take off their clothes and run across an NFL football game. NFL football being, you know, highly organized form of cultural play. There's a lot of money at stake. As you said earlier, there's a seriousness to it. Even though they're playing a game, people take it very seriously. And this guy goes naked and runs out and says, woo, you know, and he's just being playful. And of course they get in trouble and they get arrested because cultural players don't like it when somebody breaks up the game. The other example that I like using is when during the Vietnam War, um, Abby Hoffman uh, and, and uh, maybe 20,000 demonstrators performed an exorcism on the Pentagon and levitated at 30 feet off the ground. Um, nobody can prove that they didn't because it wasn't covered by the media, but um, there's, there's a great stories connected to that. And, and when you think about it, the, the Pentagon is the, you know, the planetary uh, center of cultural play. It's the greatest concentration of military power um, in, in history. Now this, uh, Arash, this can bring us back to the original idea of a trickster stumbling into moral discovery. I make the contention that it is through trickster tales that we understand how we can come to moral positions experientially. And I contend that tricksters are anti-war. <laughs> now, why are they anti-war? Are they anti-war based on some moral doctrine that says peace is good and war is bad? No. They're anti-war because there is no activity on the planet that is less fun <laughs> than war. Yeah. And tricksters just want to have fun. Yeah. 
So without having to resort to any doctrine, any sense of God or, 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 or a set morality, the trickster discovers their first step of morality, their first moral decision, which is to be anti-war and to make fun of it. And, and tricksters compulsively mock power. And this is why, to move on to my ultimate point, the tricksters open the door for people like you and I to have conversations about utopia, about the kind of world we really want to live in. And we can't see it because our vision is obstructed by the abuse of power and by what power is constantly doing in creating problems in the world, whether it's through immigration, through war, through climate change, through sexism. These are all examples of how abuse of power has created all this smoke and all these problems that we have to address. But the trickster, and, and, and I don't dispute that we need to do that, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But the trickster through their mockery of power clears the smoke out of the air and lays power low and allows us therefore to perhaps see a horizon for what kind of world we ultimately want to live on, live in. And absolutely. And looking at the individuals, like if you look at dictators, they don't have a sense of humor. They feel self-important and Correct. they see humor as a threat. Satire is something that is immediately banned once they take control. So it shows the power also, the power of comedy, the power of the trickster to bring about change and to, because they live on this illusion of respect and grandeur and so on. When the trickster comes in, they, they lose all of that. Uh, you make you make a really, really wonderful point there. And, you know, that's why someone like Sasha Baron Cohen is, is, is you know, is perhaps one of the, the most um, inspirational, I'll say, trickster uh, personalities um, out there today. And it, it's quite true what you say about them not having a sense of humor. Um, if I may make a, a related point. Um, when you go around the world and you look at the trickster gods in various cultures, they're, they're very powerful. You know, the, one of the trickster gods who most intrigues me is from West Africa, Eshua Legba. And in West African spirituality, Elegba, trickster, plays tricks, walks with a limp because one leg is in the world of, that we live in and one leg is in the world of the gods. And if you want to talk to the big God, if you want to get an audience before the all-powerful God, you have to go through Eshuelegba. Eshuelegba, generally presented as male, but they all gender shift too. But Eshuelegba, he's, um, he, he's the guy you've got to convince before you get a chance uh, to talk to God. So here's my point. Whether it's, whether it's Eshuelegba or Wakchinkaga or Loki, or the Huli Jing from China, these trickster gods are very powerful. But in Western culture, just like you were saying, the authoritarians don't have a sense of humor and they don't want to be mocked. Yet Western civilization was intent on building empire. And if you're building empire, you have to raise armies. You have to convince your army that it's okay to go kill whomever you've identified as the enemy. And you usually have a religious institution with a doctrinaire 
feelings of what's good and evil, what's right and wrong, and they've made a rationalization for why it's okay for the army to go kill. Maybe the Crusades are the best example. <laughs> um, you can't have some trickster, powerful trickster God running around <laughs> making fun of it. So what Western civilization did, but you can't kill an archetype either, right? Mm -hmm. So what Western civilization did is they stripped the trickster of the tricksters of their power and they invented the court jester. So the court jester mm -hmm. is allowed to speak truth to power, but has no power, which distinguishes Western civilization from the rest of the world. Um, until World War One, when you had Dada, and Dada was an anti-war movement, mm -hmm. but it was also a place, uh, 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 what I call it is the jailbreak of the trickster. They, they removed the handcuffs, and they refused to be the court jester, and they were, an, they were not only an art movement, but they were an anti-war movement. So the tricks, they're definitely an animation, a, a societal animation of the trickster spirit. But, but even like, as you talk about it, the source of religion and the uh, Christian religion, I mean, Jesus himself was a trickster in my point of view. I mean, he hung out with prostitutes. He would turn water into wine. He would hang out with children. So to me, that's the embodiment of it. And that kind of sense of humor too. It's like, oh, check again. Well, guess what? Your water has just turned into wine. Yeah. If, if whether it's a, a true miracle or it's a trick, it doesn't matter. It's the spirit that's behind it. It's like, let's have fun. Let's celebrate. Let's right. enjoy this wedding. And um, I mean, yeah, he sees his followers prostitutes. And he said, let's not judge them. Let's be like children. That's the ultimate thing. But what happened? I mean, we've, we've taken a completely different route after that. Yeah, he kind of pissed off the Roman government, didn't he? It, it, everyone, the priest, everyone. Uh, yeah. No, no sense of humor there. Yeah. So they, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a really, really, really good point. Yeah. And you know, my my favorite characterization um, in literature is uh, in Shakespeare's King Lear, uh, the fool. Mm -hmm. And so the fool is the classic jester, and the trickster spirit, and. He's constantly telling King Lear the truth, you know, and pointing out his mistakes. And King Lear, representing power, representing the warrior, representing someone who's losing power and and becomes more desperate, uh, um, won't listen to him. And and then all of a sudden, Shakespeare springs on us this other attribute of the trickster, which is that they time travel. And I don't know how much we have time to, to talk about that, to make Let's it do. fun. Let's do, yeah. But um, there is a chapter in the book about mm -hmm. time travel. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, I think it's in Act 3, is um, the fool uh, gives his last message to the king. And there really was a King Lear. And then there really was a time of a King Arthur and the Round Table and Merlin. I don't know if the people existed, but that was an actual era. Between King Lear and the King Arthur period are hundreds of years. So the fool in King Lear says, I'm done here. When you see me again, it will be in the time of Merlin, mm -hmm. which is hundreds of years in uh, ahead of uh, beyond King Lear. And then he disappears from the play. He's gone. He does not show up again. 
And um, so whether it's Bugs Bunny uh, or the Zulu trickster um, or Dennis Rodman, uh, who the, the force is strong with Dennis Rodman, they all use tunnels. And so I combined that into a single attribute that tricksters use tunnels and among those tunnels are time travel that they can actually tunnel through time as well as uh, through the earth. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I, I want to look at specifically for me who really embody it. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Andy Kaufman because, like, I, I I find him fascinating too. But also at times like uncomfortable and disturbing when right. uh, some of the characters that he creates are 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 mean. And it's like, but then at the same time, I understand what what he's trying to do, and it's not always comfortable, and it's not always easy, and we're kind of confronted with situations we're not used to and that kind of shock us um but uh one group that i i clearly would see as tricksters and they, for me they would be kind of an archetype as well because they've become it is the marx brothers oh yeah the four you know and it's funny because i say you know you know lowercase t tricksters are are humans the capital t are are the divinity but when you've got four brothers huh. and they've all got the strong force in them they uh they scrape the boundary you know they're they're like they're like sending a an airplane up into the stratosphere that can almost make it into outer space uh the, i i love writing about the the marx brothers and there are uh, two chapters on slapstick and i think the strongest examples are buster keaton and and the marx brothers um and of course the marx brothers not because they uh were in the talkies they were not silent film stars uh, they took the gymnastics of the slapstick stars who who are trickster types and they're using gravity and the pratfall as 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 their their instrument of tricksterism. Um, but the Marx Brothers were were full of quips. <laughs> and, and in a way, you know, the fact that Harpo Marx never talked was almost like um, a, a connective tissue to their background, the background of the silent films. You know, it's like he kept the image of the silent film alive and saw that you can get really good laughs and you can make fun of authority and you can play tricks without even having to utter a word. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Groucho was the master of the quips. And in the book, I think I, I use a dialogue between Chico and, and Groucho to show the trickster type and the fact that it invariably they mock power. Mm -hmm. They're always um, acting as imposters of people in power, whether it's the president of a university or a bank president or a dictator in a country. Mm -hmm. They're always poking fun. And, you know, Groucho has said, we're just in it for the laughs. We're not political. Um, I don't agree with him, but I think he said what he had to say, because you can, as a performer, you continue to have cover. So many of my examples are in the arts, because the arts is a safe place to do it. Um, and that's why not only Andy Kaufman, who got in trouble so much, and we should come back to that quality of meanness that you sometimes see, but to me, that's why Abby Hoffman, who and, and both of those guys, Kaufman and Hoffman, 
They both get chapters in my earlier book, Disruptive Play. That's why Abby Hoffman was, to me, such a, an important character because he brought this artistic level of comedy, mockery, and tricksterism right into the heart of a nation embroiled in a terrible, terrible war that everybody now acknowledges was wrong. Mm. Um, now, the whole meanness thing, I don't know. It's like tricksters, they don't set out to hurt other people. But it's not their first consideration when they're developing a, a trick or a joke. And so in the books, I try to come to terms with that because if we're talking about someone like Jesus Christ, you know, and we're talking about a better world, of course we're looking for a better world and a more perfect world. But no matter how much more perfect we get, we're never really perfect. And there's, there's, right? And there's, there's always going to be, um, you know, that quality of, well, I got this really neat trick I'm going to do, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but somebody might get a little bit hurt or offended along the way. You know, Mike Birbiglia says, you can't tell, and he's the most gentle comedian you've ever seen. He goes, you can't tell a joke without offending someone. So, um, and, well, in the book, I actually open, I'm not going to tell your audience, they got to get the book, but I open with a very, a practical joke that oh is very God. popular among 14-year-olds, and you just do it for the sake of getting the laugh, but it's it's a little, it's maybe a, a, a little bit mean, you know. Um, for me, it's pushing it too far. I showed it to my son and said, don't ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> because I know he would. I know he would. But then, then he said something that impressed me too. It's like, well, the house could go on fire. And it's like, oh, good point. So Okay. But, yeah. That's true. That's true. You wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't want that to happen. But but, yeah. but I, I think the point is here too, I, I agree with breaking the rules. Right. But I disagree with eliminating them because the rules are there to play the game. So and when I see the Marx brothers, I, I love them, but I think they're pointing towards the anarchy and so there are no rules there is no game we can do whatever you want and i find that a bit scary actually it is and i you know and i think the vision and i consider myself a utopian and i i, I think the the vision and it, it it's like okay when i was growing up in the 60s there was just this you know there were these tribes that were very politically active and they were anti-war but but things got um serious and there and, and in a way and we and we we we've, we to where there was um there were peaceful protests but there was also political violence mm -hmm. right and then you had the spiritual tribes and the people that were following gurus and looking to other parts of the world for religious concepts and that was also, and, and there was great value to both the political and the spiritual tribes, but the spiritual tribes were just, um, you know, all right, the political tribes, you, you had the concern of things descending into political violence. In the spiritual tribes, you had the concern of being delusional and not ha taking a, a more sober view of how power was being abused in the world and the real issues we need to engage. So for me personally, I was always looking for what's the integration 
of the political and the spiritual. And certainly you have Mohandas Gandhi, you have Abraham Lincoln, you have Martin Luther King Jr. as great examples of people who were both spiritual and political leaders. So somewhere in there, I, but I think my point is, is that in that utopian world, it, re, it requires the, the human, a human consciousness that has in fact transcended the need for rules. In other words, if we could raise consciousness to its ultimate level, where everybody intuitively knew what the right thing to do was, and we didn't, we didn't inflict harm on other people, and 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 we knew we were how smart they have to be to know not to screw up the environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, right? Yeah. Then, as we uh, get there, and I'm not expecting it in my lifetime or even my grandchildren's lifetime, maybe, but the need for rules, I think, would incrementally be reduced <laughs> until at some point you know we're there and it's it's a very difficult thing to envision right yeah but, but i want to know what you think of that yeah, because well, because for the immediate future i agree with you i'm not saying let's get rid of all the rules i'm not saying we can have an anarchist utopia tomorrow <laughs> but i want to talk about it yeah yeah oh for sure yeah and i i think you you make a great point about spirituality i think often it's kind of an escape where you're just like instead of like really like confronting things that are happening but at the same time people some people are too serious about it and they're too focused on things and too set in their ways of thinking that they don't see other alternatives or solutions and one of the things i i found too is like that opinions change, that our lives change, that uh, one thing we thought earlier might not be valid today. And that a lot of people have issues with that because they want a conform view of themselves. So um, we can look at, you know, when, when you look at Marx, how he changed, there's the early Marx, the later Marx, uh, Jesus, who's a Christian, but is he a Christian because he's not, he's, he's Jewish, but would he consider himself a Christian as well? So it's like all these things, and it doesn't actually matter. I mean, I'm just bringing it up just to destroy that and say, you know, it doesn't really matter. We just have to be open to things, to experiences and let them affect us and think about them, of course, our own views. Uh, one example I want to give briefly is because I thought technology would harm education. And I was maybe an anti, had an anti-technology stance. And here I am doing my podcast over Zoom and using technology to do that because I realized, wait a minute, there's so much there that I can use. There are parts of it I don't like, but parts I do like. So right. we shift in our opinion based on the experience interaction we have. And I think a lot of people have their, their prejudices because they, they're not opening up and they're not having contact with, with the other. And they see it as a thread, as something out there. It's very different from me. But once you are in contact, you realize, wait a minute, I was wrong. And this was completely off. And that's okay. That's right. okay to switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so if I could tell one short story before <laughs> we, we, we run out of time. When folks look at the cover of the book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, that's exactly what it's about. And the cover has the raven on it. And uh, there's the, the, the great raven tale from the indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest. Raven tales exist everywhere from Northern California 
up to Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, and even in Siberia. And the Raven tale talks about how the Raven tricks power, the chief, into performing an act of love, giving the sun, the moon, and the stars to the earth. And so tricksters are liars and saviors. And that's an interesting concept to try to get your arms around. Now, some of my heroes are the Yes Men. The Yes Men come out of New York, and I'm going to tell a story about a prank they pulled, and they say, we tell lies in order to expose greater truths. And you tell me what you think of this prank they did. So what happened is in 1984, uh, Union Carbide, which eventually was bought by Dow Chemical, um, had a fertilizer plant in Bhopal, India. The plant exploded in an industrial accident, and thousands of people were killed, thousands. And thousands more were born with birth defects uh, because of the uh, pollution that happened in Bhopal, India following this, this explosion. So it was a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, Dow Chemical was able to negotiate a deal with the government of India and gave pennies pennies to uh, the victims of this tragedy. So the Yes Men come along and it was like the 20th anniversary of this tragedy, so 2004, and they did a mean thing. They impersonated vice presidents of uh, Dow Chemical. And what they would do is they would put up fake websites. So they put up a website that looked like it was the official website of Dow Chemical and they would wait for someone to take the bait. And when I say someone, I mean people who were having conferences and they were looking for keynote speakers. So sure enough, this association of British bankers stumbled into the website, thought it was Dow Chemical, contacted the Yes Men, impersonating, in the spirit of the Marx Brothers, <laughs> impersonating vice presidents from Dow Chemical and invited them to come give a keynote address. So they go to England, they get on BBC Four, so millions of people hear them talking, and they go to this conference, and again, impersonating these vice presidents, they apologize publicly for the tragedy in Bhopal, and they agree to more um, uh, uh, reasonable, I'll say, and therefore more, uh, more money, and in fact, they, I think they agreed to, to uh, bankrupt their company and give the money to the people of Bhopal to compensate them for the tragic loss 20 years earlier. Well, of course they get caught. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but, it, but this trick creates a win-win. Either Dow Chemical has to say, well, these guys were impersonating us, but they're right, and we're going to give the money to Bhopal, or they'll go... These guys are mean impersonators of us, and we're not, and no, we're not giving any money to Bhopal, which is what actually happened. And then they go, that was a really mean thing to do. Look what you did. You raised the hopes of the people of Bhopal that they were going to get something that they weren't. That was really mean. And so, you know what? They said, maybe you're right. So the yes men went to Bhopal to meet with the citizens and and they unanimously, the, 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 the town of Bhopal thanked them, thanked them for bringing international attention to their plight. Yeah. Classic trickster. Marx Brothers are the theory. The Yes Men put that theory into practice. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think in that case, it's fine. I mean, there, there's always deception with tricksters too. You need to right. deceive in order. And that, that's the sense of humor there too. And uh, uh, we appreciate so much more when there is a certain level of deception going on. And like a magician, you know, we just like, and suddenly you reveal it. It's like, guess what? You know? yeah. And uh, I think that's, that's hugely important. I was wondering um, how important is also like uh, music for you in, in, in your uh, in writing this book, as well as following this style because uh, jazz music to me it's like that is really like adjusting on the moment and and uh, rock music itself too when we look at the uh, especially with the beatnik generations and the rockers so how important was that too and an influence in in writing this specific book well you know my undergraduate degree is in music and and i grew up in the bay area where there were so much musical talent and I, uh, in particular, became a close follower of the Grateful Dead and had many inspirational moments at their concerts. But let's not forget all the greats that came out of, uh, I mean, Santana played at my high school graduation, you know, um, and they were an up and coming band. And uh, Joan Baez went to my high school. Grace Slick went to my high school. Um, so it was it was really quite the time. So you couldn't help but be very influenced uh, by music. And I, I will also say that this book has two beating hearts. Now, besides the slapstick and the Lord Buckley and the time travel, the real hearts of the new book, one has to do with the feminine and the female trickster. And Yoko Ono gets an entire chapter, and we know that her husband was very musical and really of the Beatles. I mean, you got to say, John was the trickster, the, the, the strong trickster character. And the other beating heart is of African culture, and this brings us back to music, and that, uh, that Eshua Legba uh, made the Middle Passage along with all the enslaved Africans who came to the New World and reemerged in the context of voodoo and vodun and emerged in the music of Brazil and the music of the Caribbean and the music of the Southern United States. And so that the trickster spirit, and I, I think it's really hard to um, give specific examples of how Eshu shows up in, in a new world, Af Af I'll call it the Afro-Atlantic, in Afro-Atlantic music, but but Eshu is there. Now, when it comes to, I love the way, Arash, you talked about being like, a, that Jesus was like a child and that other, other uh, great trickster figures are so in touch with their child. For me in music, the, uh, the uh, early 20th century composer, Eric Satie, yeah. best represents that childlike trickster character. And like Jesus, he was a Pied Piper in his town and children would follow him around. And in jazz, Thelonious Monk has always been the talent that most impressed me in that way, that his music uh, has a, uh, he, he, he's one of the great geniuses of jazz. His music is very sophisticated. Um, I think he came through Juilliard. Um, and yet, when you listen to it, he can sound like just a, a little kid at the keyboard. There's a playfulness in almost all of Monk's music. Where would Elvis fit in there? <laughs> Where would Elvis fit in? Well, I mean, Elvis was a conveyor, right, of, um, of African-American musical values. 
into uh, a broader uh, mainstream and he unleashed this rule breaking energy, right? Because we got more sexual in the rock and roll music was more sexual, it was more wild. Um, it upset people, it did a lot of things that that, that that tricksters do, you know. And so I think he, I don't see Elvis himself as a trickster type, but I think, and that's my point, mm -hmm. is that I'm not encouraging people or I tell the stories of tricksters because I want people to get it. But I want us to get it in a way that if we have a trickster consciousness in the same way we have a warrior consciousness now where it's just more prevalent, people are more aware of it. And I do, this is the hardest question I ever get. People say, well, I get what you're saying, but what do you want me to do, you know? And I refer them to the yes men, but you know, and as I could say, yeah, go join a rock and roll band, you know, go be an Elvis impersonator. I mean, why not? Andy Kaufman yeah. was an extremely talented Elvis impersonator. Yeah, so. You surprised me with your question, but it's a fun question to explore. So I do think the rule breaking of rock and roll is a great example of that trickster dynamic of unleashing energy that we previously had rules that kept that energy repressed. Mm -hmm. Without disagreeing with you that we need new rules, but you know, like Bill Maher says every Friday night, new rules, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wonderful. And I, I see that also with, with uh, Zen monks often, because they do play around with things. They do have that kind of playful attitude. And I think that is really important because we're so dead serious on career, on politics, on this, I want to become this. Let's just awaken that inner child within us. That's still there. Let's just like occasionally listen to it and let's like be occasionally guided by, by that voice. And uh, I think more people need to do that. So it's like, we're not just kind of feeling so rigid and tense. If Elvis knew it was an act and he was just like, oh, I'm just kind of like Sasha Baron then I would say, yes, he's a trickster because he fooled us, right? right but right. we don't know that. <laughs> we don't, we don't know, know that, that. <laughs> right. That's something else. Um, but what I do know is uh, Dr. Shepard Siegel, it's such a pleasure talking to you. Your book is fascinating. And again, I want to remind everyone, it's called Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love. I think we saw that here too, how tricksters through history have changed the world and continue to do so. <laughs> A subtitle on the subtitle. Good for you. Well, yeah. thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. I, I hope your listeners enjoy this podcast. And um, if they, uh, besides by getting the book and reading it, if they go to my website, they can fill out the little contact form. And I'll, I send out little newsletters once in a while, not very often. But I did one on Taika Waititi from New Zealand recently. And boy, the, he, the trick, the spirit, the force is strong with him. He's yes, amazing. Definitely. He is. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. Such a pleasure. Thank you.